ND Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center of Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. ND Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. Welcome back to our new podcast, Pizza Pod and Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza Pop and Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to continue educating students post-election about different political issues from a nonpartisan lens with the hopes of fostering a more conscientious and informed student electorate. Today, we'll be focusing on the first 100 days of an American presidency, the history of the term, what President Trump was able to do and what President Biden hopes to do. And then we will sit down with Professor Jeff Hardin to discuss the significance of a 50-50 Senate in Biden's first 100 days. I'm Rachel Subnani. I am the co-chair of ND Votes and a senior science pre-professional major with minors in constitutional studies and science technology and values. And I'm joined today by our chair of campus engagement, Matt. Yeah, hi everybody. I am Matt Kotner. Uh, I'm a junior and I'm a political science and economics major um, and super excited to be here today. So I think we're gonna just jump right in with a little bit of the history of the first 100 days. So the first 100 days was a term coined by President Franklin D. Roosevelt in a radio address on July 24th, 1933. This address came after President Roosevelt had assembled a special session of Congress for three months, nearly 100 days, in order to rapidly address the issues facing the nation as a result of the Great Depression. He said in the address, we all wanted the opportunity of a little quiet thought to examine and assimilate in a mental picture the crowding events of the 100 days, which have been devoted to starting of the wheels of the New Deal. Ever since FDR, the first 100 days of the American presidency have been used as a benchmark for measuring the early success of a president. In FDR's first 100 days, he passed many bills that have become known as the New Deal. FDR established the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, Civil Conservation Corps, Agricultural Adjustment Administration, and the National Industry Recovery Act, which set up the Public Works Administration and National Recovery Administration. Other notable acts of presence in the first 100 days include President John F. Kennedy ordering the Bay of Pigs invasion, President Gerald Ford's pardon of previous President Nixon's involvement in the Watergate scandal, President Ronald Reagan announcing the release of U.S. diplomats being held as hostages in Iran, and President Barack Obama's American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Other fun facts about the first 100 days include FDR being the president able to pass the most laws at 76, and JFK being the president with the highest approval rating after 100 days, with 83% approval. Former President Trump's first 100 days saw 28 bills signed into law, the most of any president since 1949. However, an article written in the Washington Post states that none of these bills would be considered major legislation by political science standards. They also point out that 13 of those bills attempted to reverse Obama-era regulations. Another action President Trump took was the withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a free trade agreement between the United States and 11 other countries that border the Pacific. One of the most high-profile moves of his first 100 days was the nomination and eventual confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. Trump also issued 24 executive orders in his first 100 days. The most notable was the travel ban from certain Muslim-majority countries, which was challenged and stalled in court. He also ex issued executive orders to expedite the Keystone and Dakota Access pipelines. Overall, Trump's first 100 days were focused on rolling back regulations of the Obama era, while also placing new justice on the Supreme Court. So what is to come for the country and President Biden's first 100 days? President Biden enters the presidency with a narrowly democratic Congress amid a deeply divided nation in the midst of a global pandemic. 
On his first day, President Biden signed executive orders requiring face masks on federal property, rejoined the World Health Organization, created a COVID-19 response team, extended foreclosure and eviction moratoriums, froze the student debt collection, rejoined the Paris Climate Accords, revoked the Keystone Pipeline permit, terminated the Trump administration's 1776 commission, unwound former President Trump's changes to the census, strengthened legal protections for dreamers, abolished the Muslim ban, canceled the Trump administration's interior enforcement rule, halted construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall, extended deportation protections for Liberians, banned workplace discrimination against LGBT employees, and implemented an ethics pledge for all executive branch officials, also freezing President Trump's midnight regulations. By the 100th day, the administration hopes to have vaccinated 150 million Americans, authorize the Defense Production Act to increase the vaccine supply, and safely reopen the majority of elementary and middle schools. What President Biden is able to accomplish in these next three months is partially dependent on the makeup of the narrowly democratically controlled Congress. A 50-50 split Senate hasn't occurred in 20 years, so there's a lot of chatter about how this sharing of power will work and what rules may change. So what does a 50-50 Senate mean for the nation in a time of partisan divide and pandemic? Here to talk with us today is Professor Jeff Harden, the Andrew J. McKenna Family Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and Concurrent Associate Professor in the Department of Applied and Computational Mathematics and Statistics here at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Hardin specializes in American politics and political methodology. He conducts research focus on political representation, public policy diffusion, and state politics. He is the author of Multidimensional Democracy, a Supply and Demand Theory of Representation in American Legislatures, and has also published articles in several journals, including the American Political Science Review, American Journal of Political Science, Legislative Studies Quarterly, and Political Analysis. Welcome, Professor Hardin. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you very much, Matt. It's great to be here with you. So our first question for you is, how often does this happen, the 50-50 Senate, and how might uh, precedent inform how we handle this? Well, a tied Senate is a pretty rare event, although I won't be surprised if it becomes more frequent in the coming years. It, it occurred first in 1881 at the beginning of James Garfield's presidency, and then again in the 1950s after the death of Robert Taft, who was the Republican majority leader in the Senate. The 2001 tie, so the most recent one, only lasted for a few months. Uh, so Jim Jeffords was a moderate Republican from Vermont who found himself increasingly at odds with President Bush and the Republican Party. So he left the party to become an independent, but caucus with the Democrats, giving them a slight edge, at least on procedural matters. So, so it's fairly rare. But I should also mention that this event has occurred more in state legislatures. So uh, since 1966, it has actually happened 42 times in the states, including once in Indiana in, in the House in 1988, and most recently in the Connecticut Senate in 2016. Going back to the, the US Senate for, for a moment, I think this tie does seem a little different from the previous ones. It is really the result of elections, much more than something like the untimely death of a senator or the decision about 
which party to caucus with by one or two independents. Those were main reasons for the, the previous ties. This one to me looks more like a reflection of a deeply divided America. Awesome. Uh, would there be any other rules in place or rules or norms when there isn't a clear majority? Or is there any way that those state ties that we've seen more often in history could possibly inform uh, what we're to see in the next few years of, of this Congress? It's a good question. For the most part, the chambers of Congress can make their rules and, and decide how they want to conduct business. That's what the constitution tells them to do. And it's, it's how we get to the point where a majority party controls committee chairs and, and membership on committees uh, and things like that in, in the first place. In the case of a tie in the Senate, like what we're seeing here, the rules essentially have to be, be rewritten or at least revised to reflect that even distribution. So that's gonna be a product of negotiation as we've seen. Um, however, as, as you mentioned, Matt, there, there is uh, something we can learn from the states in this case too. It wouldn't necessarily have to be this way. Um, the states have used various methods to solve this problem over the years. Some of them have actually written into law exactly what to do in, in case of a tie. So, for example, some of them have written into law that the, the party of the governor gets to be declared the majority in, in this kind of situation. There are also several states that engage in these power sharing negotiations, like what we've seen in the Senate. And then my personal favorite is the coin flip approach. And this has actually been used in Wyoming multiple times to settle ties. So as long as you can flip a coin, you can, you can settle a tie. I did not know that. That is super interesting. <laughs> so whereas the U.S. electorate now sees the Senate as being slightly democratic because the vice president or who is in power can break the tie, states have also said whoever the governor's party um, can be in control. That Yes, that has happened. Although in, in other states, they give the power of the, to the lieutenant governor to break ties as well. So there's there's quite a lot of variation, but yeah, that is something that multiple states have done. Gotcha. Okay. So what procedurally occurs when the vice president needs to break a tie in the Senate? Is it as simple as um, a final vote or how does that work? It, it is pretty simple. Uh, the, the constitution states that the vice president is the president of the Senate, but that he or she can only vote if the votes by the members of the Senate are tied. And you can see in the Senate's roll call records, you can find these online, the, the vice president is separated out in all of those instances. So the, the vote count is listed as tied, for example, 50 yeas and 50 nays, and the vice president's tiebreaker vote is listed separately from those. So looking at this divided Congress, what, what do you think is possible within these next few years with this kind of, with this kind of power sharing, this 50-50 Senate? What, what do you think can get done uh, legislatively? Well, I, I, the way I see it, there is essentially no margin of error. If the Democrats want to pass a bill that lacks Republican support, they will have to have everyone in the party on board. And this is certainly possible but it can be challenging. Even within the same party, senators have different views. They represent states with different preferences and 
many of them are on different electoral cycles. So their incentives are different. Also, the Senate as an institution is more individualistic and it's, it's been this way for, for, I think, much of its history, at least compared to the House. Senators' own personal brands matter to them, even beyond the party brand. So that can get, even within the same party, senators thinking different things and going in different directions, which makes it difficult for, for party leaders. Now, I expect to see pretty strong party discipline initially, um, certainly through these first 100 days. But after that, or, or even next year, as we get into a new electoral cycle, it could become more difficult to hold parties together. And so then we might see a couple of different things. We, we could see the formation of very complex coalitions to pass maybe even controversial bills. So maybe a faction of Democrats are not supportive of a bill, but there are some Republicans that the Democratic leadership can, can recruit. Alternatively, we might just see gridlock where only the bills with the very broadest support make it to the floor and pass. And so anything remotely controversial in that case just can't even, can't even get a vote on the floor. So our next question is about the filibuster, which has definitely come under some heat and been popular in the news um, the first few weeks of determining this power sharing agreement. Um, could you just tell our viewers what that is and the history it's had in the Senate? Sure. So the, the filibuster is a means of prolonging debate on a bill through extended speech or question and answer. And the goal is to to delay or maybe even to prevent a bill's passage. So it is a tool that legislative minorities or maybe even one single legislator um, can use to obstruct the agenda of the majority. Historically, this tool is essentially an unintended consequence of a very early reform in the Senate. So in 1805, Aaron Burr was the vice president and in his role as Senate president, he argued to the members that the Senate's rule book was too complicated. And one rule that he singled out is known as a previous question motion. In practice, majorities have used this motion as a tool to end debates. It's essentially a way of calling the previous question, saying let's stop debating and let's vote. So Aaron Burr didn't like this. He, he thought that this was, he thought it was redundant. And in general, he thought the whole rule book was overly complicated. And the Senate more or less agreed with him. And in, in the next year, in, in 1806, this previous question motion was eliminated from the Senate's rules. However, it wasn't until decades later that this really had any sort of practical effect. Um, it, was, it was much later that members of the Senate realized that they could actually use what were relatively lax rules on the length of debate to obstruct legislation. And, and so that's what they started to do. Although I, I should mention that the use of the filibuster through much of the 19th century was not nearly as frequent as uh, in, in later years. 
um, it, it has gained in popularity in, in its use over time. Uh, but in its history, it has been used on a, on a wide variety of legislative topics, or it has been used to, to filibuster bills on these topics. Uh, one of the first ones was on the question of chartering a new national bank that was in the 1840s. Uh, the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, and maybe most famously, the filibuster has been used against civil rights legislation. And this is, uh, was particularly true in the late 1940s, 1950s, and in the 1960s as well. Awesome. Um, so if you could maybe just talk us through some of the, there's obviously a lot of heated contentious debate about the filibuster now uh, with, with how tightly uh, divided the Senate is. If you could talk us through some of the pros and cons of the filibuster uh, as it stands today, um, and, and yeah, what, what do you think about it? So conceptually, the, the filibuster represents the question of how much a legislature should prioritize debate and deliberation over the issues of the day versus efficiency in completing its policymaking function. So on one hand, most of us probably think that when considering a new bill, Congress should actually take time to debate. How else are we gonna have a voice in government if the people that we elect don't talk about what they are voting on? This is particularly important for numerical minorities. And by that, I mean people or groups with one perspective who are outnumbered by an opposing perspective. We could think about that along partisan lines, but it doesn't necessarily have to be by party. The main point is if the majority can end debate quickly, is the minority really being represented? That's, that's sort of the, the conceptual question that, that the filibuster gets at. But there's also a risk of, of the opposite effect or what we might label as tyranny of the minority. If a small group of senators or, or maybe even just one can bring progress to a halt simply by you know, reading a play or reading the phone book on the Senate floor from start to finish, then we could pretty easily argue that the legislature is failing to do what it is supposed to do. Uh, so the question over, over the filibuster and, and cloture, which we can talk about in a moment, it really boils down, at least in my view, to representation versus policymaking. Broadly speaking, the Senate errs on the side of representation by allowing filibusters, whereas the House errs on the side of policymaking by giving the majority party power to end debates. And also going back to state legislatures, which I've mentioned a few times now, most state legislatures lean toward the policymaking end of that spectrum. So about 35 states limit the time of debate, the, the amount of time that can be spent debating a bill. And all but about 10 states include that previous question motion in their rules. I just wanted to jump in here and ask about, I know in pre, I think a long time ago, the filibuster was you really had to stand up there and read or talk um, without interruption for as long as you could to propose or postpone debate. I think of the West Wing episode where there was a congressman standing up there reading cookbooks and whatnot for over um, many, many hours. Um, but I was just wondering, I, I believe there's been a, a change to that uh, rule and now you can just threaten a a filibuster and kind of when that started. 
Yeah, that's that's true. Um, there there were a series of reforms in the 1970s. Actually, Congress went through many reforms in the 1970s, um, including some reforms that changed a bit how the how the filibuster operated in practice. And there have been changes to the filibuster since then as well. So it, it's it's never uh, really stayed in place for for too long in its current form. But um, yeah, coming out of the 1970s reform, you see um, enough of a change to the rules that the threat of the filibuster is is more central than uh, filibuster itself. Now, do we think that you talked about state legislatures and how uh, they differ with their with their kind of filibuster motions? Is that something that obviously we, these filibuster discussions are coming largely from the Democratic side because they're the party in power right now? Are they looking to limit? Uh, the amount of time on the on a debate? Or are they just looking to outright abolish the filibuster? Or if this were something that were to happen, um, what kind of state legislature or what, what would it look like? Would it be limiting the time or would it just be downright getting rid of, of uh, the filibuster? Uh, the, the focus is generally on limiting time in, in the state legislatures. And there's actually a, a fairly straightforward reason for that. In most states, the legislature is more or less a part-time job. Um, and in fact, in some states, the, the members don't really even get paid beyond enough money to you know, drive to the Capitol or, or for, for living expenses and stuff like that. And they, many of them also limit the length of the session and, and even make it difficult for the governor to call special sessions. So all of this combines to make it actually pretty difficult to get the job done if you have something like the filibuster as a possibility. So it's, it's a fairly practical reason. The states say, we have to get our work done. We have to, for example, pass a budget, or we have to give our members enough time and space to propose bills and, and, and get them through all of the uh, steps that it needs to get through. So they really can't afford to have a filibuster in, in many states for this reason. And so um, they limit time on, on debate to make sure that there is at least some level of efficiency in getting their work done. And also I wanted to comment on or ask you that we had, um, the filibuster has kind of already been, uh, its power been taken away a little bit. Is, am I correct in saying, didn't it used to be uh, necessary for Supreme Court justices and now it is no longer so? Or am I characterizing that correctly? Um, with recent, uh, obviously President Trump got to appoint uh, three justices of the Supreme Court. So this is something that's very uh, important and pertinent now. Sure, yeah, I, I think what you're referring to is maybe the, the nuclear option, which is a fairly recent uh, innovation, I guess. This is a parliamentary procedure that allows the Senate to override a standing rule, override one of its own standing rules, such as the uh, three-fifths vote that's required to close debate. Um, and, and they can override this standing rule by a simple majority uh, rather than a supermajority. And so in the last 20 years or so, and certainly in the last 10, this option has been used to push through nominations. Great. Um, and now I want to get into a little bit more of kind of the, the nuances of the filibuster. Uh, so most bills need these 60 votes to pass, but is it also correct in saying that they really only need a majority to actually pass, but 
60 to get through the filibuster or could we talk a little bit how that works procedurally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to the best way to think about that, we need to go back to 1917 when the Senate adopted a rule allowing for cloture motions, which at the time uh, could be used to end a filibuster if two thirds of the senators voting on the bill agreed to stop debate. And that's, that's an important point. Uh, this rule stayed in place for several decades, um, but in the 1970s, as I mentioned, the, the Senate made a lot of changes. And in particular, they wanted to make some rule changes in response to all the filibustering of civil rights bills in the 50s and 60s. So one of the reforms they made was uh, that they changed the need or the, the threshold for cloture votes to three-fifths of the entire chamber or 60 out of 100 senators. So if you remember previously, it was two thirds of the senators voting on the bill. Now it's an absolute number, three fifths of the entire chamber or technically three fifths of the senators who were sworn in at that moment. So what they thought they were doing was sort of lowering that threshold a little bit. It's still a super majority, but, but they thought they were lowering the threshold. But, but again, we see an unintended consequence emerge. Um, this change actually made filibusters easier because the small number of senators who were filibustering no longer required their friends who refused to cloture to remain on the floor. And so uh, that reform, plus combined with another reform called tracking, which is where multiple motions can be pending at the same time on the Senate floor, this, this change to an absolute number, to 60, effectively made the Senate this supermajoritarian institution that we kind of know about today. And that gets to, to your question, Matt. Um, yes, the, the, the threshold for passing is a majority, but because of the, the way that these reforms have streamlined the filibuster process, if that makes sense, um, it is an, effectively a, a supermajoritarian institution uh, requiring 60 votes. Thank you so much. That really helps. Um, my next question is, what is budget reconciliation and how can it make laws easier to pass and maybe its limitations? Yeah, um, to, to put it simply, budget reconciliation makes passing laws in the Senate easier because bills that are passed as reconciliation bills are subject to a 20-hour debate limit. So we have this rare instance in the Senate where there actually is a, a time limit on debate. Um, so in other words, the filibuster is not possible with budget reconciliation bills. Um, this process actually also comes out of the, the 1970s reforms. The, the idea was to provide resources and a clear plan for Congress to outline the federal budget. So it created new budget committees in the House and in the Senate that were in charge of setting the spending levels in different areas through budget resolutions. But those budget committees don't actually draft bills that create specific spending on, on particular topics within those areas. Um, the appropriations committees do that. The budget committees also are not in charge of tax bills. In the Senate, that's the job of, of the finance committee. 
So you can imagine with all these different committees doing work on federal spending and money that the, the government takes in, that there might be some laws that conflict with each other. So budget reconciliation bills are designed to align all of this to fit under what the budget resolution says. The process does have a number of limitations. So for, for one budget resolution, a reconciliation bill can alter spending, revenue, and debt limit each one time. There's also what is essentially a germaneness requirement, meaning that provisions in these reconciliation bills that are considered extraneous cannot be passed through this reconciliation process. So if the Senate parliamentarian determines that something in a proposed reconciliation bill is actually outside of the scope of what budget reconciliation is intended to do, then that provision needs 60 votes to pass. Awesome. Uh, so as we start to maybe wrap up a little bit here, leave you with some questions that are maybe a little bit more uh, geared towards the future. So just your thoughts on what this 50-50 Senate split means, uh, I mean, for the, this call for unity by President Biden. I mean, that's what that's what he ran on, um, is, is this call for unity. Do you think having a more divided Senate helps that call for unity because uh, people have to work together more or hinders because it just shows that this country is divided? Um, yeah, well, what are your thoughts on on the Senate and, and how unity can kind of be achieved, if it can be? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. It's a really important question. So certainly a, a tied Senate indicates that we have two very competitive parties at the national level. But I, I don't think that means we have to be resigned to disunity. Both parties will be limited going forward. So, you know, I, as, you, as you just said, Matt, I, I think that does present a real opportunity for bipartisanship and, and unity. Or to, to put that differently, I think there would be reason to worry about disunity if one party held a supermajority, because it would mean that the minority's voice could so easily be silenced. We, we do see this in state legislatures where one party dominates the other. So I think unity can happen in spite of policy differences. The, the Tide Senate essentially forces the two parties to, to listen to each other and hopefully to, to work together. So I do think that President Biden's call for unity is a good first step. It, it's important to hear from the top of our government that working together is a priority. That's important. And, and hopefully it sets the tone for everyone else. But we'll have to see what it looks like in practice. It's going to require the parties to listen to each other and give a little bit sometimes. And some people may be opposed to this idea, but we actually know that not everyone is. We know from recent research by political scientists that even today, even in this very highly polarized partisan environment, Americans actually still want to see their elected officials work together. They would rather see compromise than, than gridlock. And so I think this idea of, of a spirit of healthy compromise would reflect the, the proper balance between 
that dichotomy of representation versus policymaking um, that is sort of at the heart of the debate over the, the filibuster and, and, and the, a tied Senate. I sure hope so too. Um, I just want to give an update to our viewers. At the second week of February, the Senate has agreed to a power sharing agreement. Um, they have moved forward with confirming some of President Biden's nominees. The agreement is very similar to the one in 2001. Um, and there was strenuous debate about the filibuster, but Democrats have said that they don't intend to do away with the filibuster anytime particularly soon. All right, awesome. Well, I liked, really liked how you said Professor Harden, the first step, and I hope that we make those second, third, fourth steps uh, through these next uh, end of the 100 days, all the way to 2022, 2024, and beyond. Um, and we plan to be there with you guys uh, through the whole way, uh, through through those elections and through these next 100 days. So, uh, Andy Votes would like to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Constitutional Studies Minor, and Andy Student Media for their support and production of this podcast. We would also like to thank our wonderful guest, Professor Jeff Harden. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, as always, MD Votes reminds you to register to vote and request your absentee ballot using the link on our website uh, and or in our Instagram bio. Um, and please check out other voter education resources on our website. Thank you so much for listening. Your vote matters. Get political. <laughs>